I really, I love LA. If you were here last week, you might have been like, man, I don't know if Brad loves LA. He's talking about all this, the darkness and all of those things. But I, I really love LA. And before Randy Newman was writing songs for Pixar, he was writing songs that were some appropriate, some not appropriate. You guys know Randy Newman? You've got a friend in me. Yeah. But he wrote this song about Los Angeles and kind of became an anthem song for our city. It's played after every Lakers home victory, which is pretty great. Uh, And so I'm going to read it, but this is kind of a call and response. At the end, there's going to be parentheses and italics, and that's where you guys have to say those words. And hopefully you know what those words are. If not, maybe you're a Clippers fan, Chris. Uh, But the Clippers don't have a song at the end after winning, and the Lakers have two. And I'll quote both. But first, the Randy Newman one. It's just called I Love LA. It says this, roll down the window, put the, down the top, crank up the Beach Boys, baby. Don't let the music stop. We're going to ride it till we just can't ride it no more. From the South Bay, who's from the South Bay? There we go. To the Valley, who's from the Valley? Oh, good. From the West Side to the East Side, everybody is very happy because the sun is shining all the time. Looks like another perfect day. This is our part. I love LA. We love it. I love LA. We love it. We love it, right? That's what they play at the end of Lakers games when we win. And there's also confetti every time. That's how you know you're so full of it as a fan base, that you think winning a regular season game requires confetti and a theme song. Uh, Anyway... We love the city of LA, I think. There's so many things that are great about it. The energy of the city, that's something people often say. The, there's a pace and a busyness of it, but also just the collection of cultures, the food, the weather, the opportunities that it brings, all of the choices. Like last night we could have done, like if you didn't have the constraints of children, you could have done, you know, hundreds of things, seen tons of live concerts, gone to lots of museums, eaten so many different things. Uh, There's so much to love about it. The Lakers, I've I've mentioned before, the beaches, the mountains, like what a place, right? Or as Tupac says in the other theme song, California knows how to party in the city in LA, right? That's a really great song and I resisted (laughs) doing it. Thank you. But loving the weather and loving food and having access to parties or being in a city that knows how to party, loving that is actually pretty easy. Uh, But loving people, loving like when we say, oh, we want to love the city, to love the people, the humans within the city, that's actually quite hard. It's, It's challenging even conceptually. Like what does it mean to love the city of LA, like the government, like the, all of the people, like 14 million people I have affection for and sacrifice, like how does that actually work? I think today's passage from Acts chapter 17 gives us a look into how can we not just love the things that our city offers, but love the people and, and what would that love look like? So it's Acts 17 verse 16 and on. And actually the stuff I'm talking about connects to the packet that Sarah made. So if you just want a kid's packet, we can pass those around too. It says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. 
And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting in the Areopagus, where he said to them, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to, to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I get, like, that was ancient social media. Uh, anyway, 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Acropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. You are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and did and the boundaries of their lands, and God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set the day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to the, everyone by raising that man, him, from the dead. When they heard about this resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is God's word. The beginning of this passage, of this whole story, it starts with Paul, uh, just for some context, is there's a big, you know, chaotic thing happening in Thessalonica, and so he basically gets to Athens as just this, like, escape moment, a time to just Rack, relax and rest and just sort of chill and hang out in this big city. He's just sort of passing through. There's nothing big strategic about it. It's just a place that he's, he's resting at. He's just being there. But then he walks and he lives life in this city for a bit. And it says that he is greatly distressed. How do we love our city? It starts actually with compassion. This, this word distressed, it's, it's this compassionate grief. Uh, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he tells his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's about to be betrayed, where he's about to be tried and killed. He tells his, his close disciples, he's like, come and pray with me because I am distressed. 
I am overcome with sorrow. Jesus was entering a moment of intense anxiety and worry and fear and stress. And Jesus, you know, confesses to his friends, I am stressed. I am overwhelmed. This is like even afraid. And then Jesus kind of prays that out right afterwards. Paul is feeling the exact same things, this deep grief, this overcoming with sorrow. He has an empathy for the city. Uh, It's not resentment. He doesn't resent the city. He doesn't hate the city. He's not jealous of the city. He doesn't make jokes about the city. He's just fundamentally filled with compassion. Uh, He doesn't battle them. He doesn't think, okay, this city's really, really crazy. It's really different. They're worshiping all of these other things. What we really need to do is, you know, circle the wagons and have a war to overcome this culture. Like, he doesn't do that. Uh, He doesn't call them fools or idiots or anything like that. He grieves. He's profoundly kind of marked by just a grief of what they experience. And this kind of grief over cities is throughout the scripture. So Jonah, who's angry at the city, he's kind of the opposite of Paul. He's like, you know, let them burn and all of those sorts of things. But God comes to him and says, why would I not do something for this city of Nineveh because they're my people. They're people. They exist. It's a city filled with people, so why would I not be moved with compassion? And we know that God's heart then is for humans, even in cities that are crazy. And then also, Jesus, as he's finally coming into Jerusalem, where he's going to, to die, he also grieves and he weeps over that city too. And so one of the questions to think about are, is, are you overcome with the compassion with compassion for the people around you? Do you look at what's happening and do you actually just kind of grieve for them? Are you moved to empathy for what other people are experiencing? Um, Kind of a, a question, if anyone's brave enough to ask, I've got lots of questions today, is what might be blocking you from having that kind of emotion for this city? What is it that keeps you from like being like Paul saying, oh, I'm really distressed by what's happening here? And you might, you know, instead of drawing on distress, you're drawing on anger, resentment, those sorts of things. Yeah. I'd say cynicism. Cynicism? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's hard to get to that compassion when you're just cynical about what these people are doing with their lives. Yeah. Even it's easy with cynicism because in every inter- interaction you might or scenario like what for us, whether it's like kids soccer or housing or neighborhood or whatever, it's like, oh, well, those are the people that are influential. and re-. So like nothing people say is real in every environment. They're like, well, we're a family. And it's like, no, we're not. There's no tryouts for family. But we're, ha- yeah, you don't get cut because you didn't perform well enough in family. But you're saying the soccer team is a family, but we're not going to hang out. 
once the season's over. So yeah, totally. It builds a ton of cynicism. Yeah. What else is stuff that kind of blocks you from feeling this motion of empathy or compassion for the people of the city? (laughs) So we look at like, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you look around, you're like, oh, it's, there's so much crime happening. Maybe I need to be even more protective. And how did we get here? And then it's like, do the, why should I care about these people? Because didn't we make these choices that led to these outcomes? Totally. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Mm. 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 Yeah, so the the like it's hard to love other people when you think oh they should just get smart and care about the right things and do the right stuff. Yeah. Right. Right. Which you're, yeah, you're kind of articulating is like your own religiousness. You know, it's like if I just, if they would just do what I do, they would have a good life. And so why should I not, why should I care about them? Because they're not doing what I do. Yeah. Any others? Yeah. Totally. It's just really overwhelming. Like, how could I care that deeply? Yeah. Even, yeah, enter into that, like, grief over what people experience in the city is, like, that's like starting a a wound. You're opening up a wound that you don't know what's going to happen after that. I think that's often the case with grief just in general. That's like, uh, that, yeah, if you're going to start cutting or you know like there's a story of the guy who was stuck under the rocks uh and he had to cut his own arm off do y'all remember that story there was a movie about it james franco he cut his own arm off he's like perfectly cast because you're like he would do that but yeah he has to like they talk about how people in that scenario that the hardest thing to do is not actually this is so gross i should stop not in the notes but it's the first cut that's the hardest to overcome, not the worst, the other things. And it's because it's, you know it's going to be so painful. And I think often we like think about the whole city and like try to love other people and to go to that place of grief or compassion is to say, I don't, like it's going to just be so overwhelming once I feel feelings for others. Yeah, that was gross. Sorry. Hmm. Changing everything. Mm. Totally. Yeah. 
it's very real. Yeah. So loving the city does start with compassion and grief, as Paul does. He says, I'm distressed. But that's not, you know, we could, we could feel feelings about the city, and that probably wouldn't be the end of it. The next thing that we see is that he loves the city by seeing it, by seeing what's like really happening. I don't know if that's true for you. I'm a middle child. Uh, the way I feel most loved is when people see me, you know, like not like, you know, people see me. I know that you see me now, but like know what's actually going on and like notice and acknowledge those sorts of things. He sees the city and he's filled with grief. And a good question of like, why is he grieving? It's because of what he sees. He says that their city is filled with the worship of things that are not real. Why is he so sad? Because they're worshiping things that will not last. He's, they're worshiping things. They're giving their lives. They're, as Josh is saying, like they have their own set of rules and things that they're trying to follow that are going to lead to a good life. And he's like, it's not going to satisfy them. That's why he grieves. He uses this word, idols. Idols are things that we give our time, our money, our energy, ourselves, our hopes, and our desires to. Uh, It's anything that we give ourselves to that is not the true and the living God. Uh, In that era, they had like all these little different gods that represented different things within society, like the military or wealth or sea merchant ships. Like they had all of these gods and idols and statues to them. And it all kind of represented like I'm giving myself to these different endeavors. For us, you know, we don't have statues quite like that anymore. But we do have these idols of that could be money, just like we have big banks with big institutions written on them, like big names and very fancy halls. The way that we, we treat like cash and gold and, and all the stuff that we build around, even the mystery and the awe. And we've got these like these few people in this place in New York City that decide how much money is worth. Like it's a, I mean, you can go into the Federal Reserve thing and it's, a, it's kind of like a, a nightmare of conspiracy theories overlapping that it's just kind of fun. Anyway, we have these, it's almost like the, the ancient goddesses and, and gods that we had back in the ancient world. It could be people's approval that we just long for other people to say, well done, that's so good. And so we will do anything to receive that or fame or prestige or power or security. An idol is anything that always wants more. It's a never ending insatiable pit. It always wants more while continually giving less and less back. And idols, those things that we worship and the spending of our lives for these things will never satisfy. And the contrary of you giving something and receiving something back, it's a zero-sum game. You give everything and receive nothing back. And here's what he says that that means. He says it means that they are very religious. I think it's fascinating because in Athens, they wouldn't have really been labeled this very religious bastion of a place. The other cities Paul had been to were super religious. This was more of a cosmopolitan, believe whatever you want. Like we're all here for the same things, right? Like to make money and to build prestige and fame and to be, you know, become famous thinkers and stuff. But he says they're religious in every way. 
And that's what he sees, and he sees to the heart of what's going on, which leads, he says, to a life spent pursuing dead-end hopes. Like, that's why he's so distressed and grieved. Los Angeles is also a very religious place. It's one of the first things that I kind of noticed and I experienced here. Uh, There's lots of, you know, talk of freedom and to do and to think whatever you want. And like, this is a melting pot kind of place. But what it seems to be is a, a place where we all create rules and regulations There's a clear delineation of what the good life is and what you must do to get the good life. And if you don't do those things, then you're a failure. And and if you would just do those things again, you would get the good life, that kind of calculus that gets happened. I know that it's true because, you know, when those rules and those actions and those things aren't done and they're not, you know, lived out, then everyone else is like, that person can't belong here anymore because they didn't follow the rules. They didn't do all of the things. I'm not even talking about incredibly like political things. I'm just talking like recycling, right? It's like, oh, you put the blue, you put a glass thing in the in the green spot, and that's not compostable. It's actually, you know, you should put in the blue thing, right? Like you've experienced, like there's rules, even like throwing away your trash, which I mean, I think is really good. But then also in my neighborhood, there's a lot of side eyes for the person with the black bin and cardboard overflowing outside of it, right? There's a lot of side of like, what's this family doing? Don't they know that they're now in the, in the realm of the, the ungodly, the uneducated, putting this cardboard in the black bin? Word choices, mask wearing, all sorts of things become these rules that you must live by, and if you don't, you're rejected. And so I wanna ask this question, How is our city religious? Those are just my ideas. What are the idols that we worship in this city? And how do they not lead to to hope, if you want to be so bold to to take it the whole way? Yeah. How is our city religious? Hmm. <laughs> absolutely there's a complete worship of like yeah 18 to 25 years old is how old you're supposed to be you gotta, you gotta just get stuck right in that age yes absolutely and then it requires a ton of you that you'll never get back yeah to try to be that young Right. Totally. Yeah. And then those areas kind of require a lot of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Homeowner. Yeah, exactly. We own this land, therefore, or the bank does. 
Yeah. Back to those guys in New York City deciding everything. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's like, it's fortunately, like, necessary, like, because I'm like, I just make more money. Here. Right. So it's like, it's hard to, like, consume the risk. You know, now you're thrown into, like, stuff. But I think, like, Totally. Right. Absolutely. And then I think you notice, one of the ways I notice my, like, true, like, idols or the things that I worship and I'm religious about is, is when it doesn't pay back, that's, and I get really resentful and vengeful and angry, you know, it's like, but wait, that my boss overlooked me for that other thing, but I gave and I did, and you, like, build out the list of things that you were, you did, that's supposed to justify you and then that anger and you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. But then you're, yeah, that we do have a collection of, of idols that are all intermixed. Yeah. You were going to say something, Bradley. Mm. Mm. But you teach much better at the one that's. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're bringing it more at the more expensive. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. When I found out that my teachers were teaching at other schools that were cheaper than the one that I was going to, it was very depressing. Yeah. It was like, wait. But it's a different syllabus, right? Nope. Different textbook, right? Nope. It's like, cool. Anyway, it is. No, and I think that all of those things I definitely believe are, are idols and things that we worship and the, and the religion even of our, of our city. But when you, you know, sit around, I awkwardly go to these birthday parties with my kids because they have birthday parties. There's definitely a sitcom there where like the same parents have to go to the same parties and make the same small talk over and over and over again. But in those small talks, often you do hear just the signs of, I ran that race and it's very depressing. Like I, I got the house in that neighborhood. I made the money that I needed to make to get there. And I feel more alone than ever. And it didn't give, and like the resentment and the anger and the frustration that's like boiling up, uh, even at the things that they really wanted. Um, and I think that's what Paul is saying. And that's why he's so grieved by it. And so he reasons with them. Uh, he, he walks into the marketplace, he has discussions, he doesn't shout from the sidewalks, he doesn't treat them like enemies, he doesn't poke fun or agitate them, he actually sits down and he's like, let's reason about this, Let, let's, uh, let's engage. He engages their sculptors and their architects, he engages their poets, their philosophers, he uses their framework for thinking about the world. He doesn't ask them to check their brains. You know, he's like, hey, I've got something really important to tell you, but you can't use your brain. You know, he doesn't do that. He essentially says, no, no, I'm going to start exactly where you are. 
I'm going to engage all of the thinking that you have. And he does that because he's like, you were made to seek God and to find God, not to seek these other things that were just made by you that will collapse in on themselves. And I just want to briefly explain his rational argument. He says, and this is all in that long portion that I read. It starts in verse 24 and basically goes to the end of this chapter. But he says that God created the world, the heavens and the earth, uh, and that he can't be contained by human structures, temples, artifacts made by human hands. And now this phrase, you're like, that is such a, you know, God biblical phrase, which it really is, that God created the, the heavens and the earth and cannot be contained by human structures, artifacts, and things like that. The ancient Greeks also, the philosophers, the leading minds of the time, were also getting to that same conclusion, that if there was a God who created all things, then all things can't contain that God. Like, that's just a you know, rational understanding that if there is an outside God that created things then the created things can't then contain the thing that was outside of it. And he says, there's a God like that. And I know him. Uh, uh, There's a name and I'm going to give it to you. That's what he's basically saying. And then he goes that this God gives us all life. He breathes into us. We can't have anything apart from him. He gives us everything, and he appointed the times that we would live in for a singular purpose in life. Now, this too, this is also, I know if you've know, been around the church a lot, you're like, okay, well, that's another big God claim. It's also, it is a God claim. It's also a rational claim that if there's a God who created all things, including us, then all that we breathe and experience and the way that we're made and how civilizations are able to be built and sustained and all of that, it must come from that God because he created all things. And so the way that we live and exist has to somehow be from that God. And then he says that God, this is where he gets into the why, and this is the the profound truth claim from that reasoning, which is that God made us for a purpose, not just for for dangling around. And this is where he goes against all of the Greek thinking at the time. This is the big conflict is that God made us to seek him and to reach out for him that we might know him and find him. This is like the big profound thing that this God is not just this ethereal being that you cannot know or see or anything, but he's saying this is a knowable God who created you to know him and that there is no life apart from knowing him. This is the dramatic claim of the Bible. Uh, He goes on to quote their own philosophers and their own poets, the philosophers that say, in him we live and move and have our being. He's, He's using a little bit of a twist. They were referring to like, we can't exist in this world apart from him, but he's saying, no, no, we can't exist in this world apart from knowing him. Then he says, we're his offspring, quoting a different poet, that that we are people born from him and need him. And so this is his main argument, that you cannot live a life apart from your creator. Everything else, if if you worship the created things, everything else will come up empty, dull, and dead. You can pursue religion, he's saying, you can pursue idols, but it's going to come up empty every time. And he's saying, we all know this. You all know this. Your art is telling you that too. 
I think that's one of the most fascinating things about this moment in life. Maybe there was a time in the past where people were like, yeah, work, family, mortgage, that's going to satisfy you. I actually don't know anybody who believes that, like functionally believes that. Like all the, the, the dads and moms and parents and judges and doctors and the people that I know are telling me, yeah, yeah, I know I bought this house and I know I had these kids and I know I'm pouring a lot of energy into them and I, and I know I got married and I know I have, a, but I know it's not going to actually make me happy. Like people know that, right? A lot of y'all are nodding your heads like, yeah, I could get to the top of my career and I'm, I don't have any trust or belief that it's going to make me happy. I think that's why the only people running for election now are like 100 years old because they're from a generation that believe that. Like being president's gonna make me happy. Uh, I don't know why I said that political statement, but there's something there. It's like, where no one our age is trying to be president, only the very ancient. Anyway, uh, we're, we live in this time where people know that what Paul is saying is actually true. There's no life and abundance through the things that we've made. We, we can look for things in our significance and security and comfort. We can give our lives to those things, but we all kind of know it's going to come up empty. And so this is what Paul says. He makes this personal appeal. He's like, leave those other things behind. That's why he says, repent, leave that stuff. Why? Because God has sent himself and made himself visible. He sent himself. He's coming to bring justice. He's appointed. He's made this, this man king. He's talking about Jesus. And he raised that person up from the dead. And he now rules all things. And instead of us think God leaving us just to reach and search and try to find God as a, like people in the dark, He's saying God's made himself visible and come into this world. And now you don't have to be ignorant anymore. You don't have to pursue any of those other things anymore. You can actually just be pursued by the living God. And then he ends. That's his whole rational argument. He stops, he sits down and and we're like, what a, like he missed some important bits there, right? Like death, resurrection, the name of Jesus, like he, how is that? Like, you know, he, he got this moment and he didn't, didn't even do any of that. Like, you know, LeBron, when he won the championship, talked more about like specifically God than Paul did here. But he sits down and he goes into these, these dialogues and these conversations and he knew that like he said this truth, he made this argument, and now it's time for dialogue and discussion and conversation. It says that people believed. Um, there was more to dialogue about. There's more to talk about, more to learn, more to say. But he's like, I'm going to give them this. And that's just my one little kind of challenge for us when we think about living on mission and loving the city. A lot of times we think, I got to figure out how to go, like, give my friend, give my neighbor this full-on, like, from the beginning of the world until now, perfectly nuanced, creative, articulate, expression of the good news of God. And like, I need to figure out how to do that. What Paul did actually is like, hey, there's this one thing that I'm really bothered by. These people are worshiping things that will not satisfy. And so I'm going to tell them there's a creator, there's a God, and that's the only way that you'll be satisfied. And then let's keep talking and let's being friends. I think that my, my challenge is that we would be those kinds of people that would share from our heart and our compassion for other people, 
the truth about God, and then we would continue to invite people into spaces where they, they can keep learning, where you can keep dialoguing with them about it. That's, you know, you can invite people to your missional community. That's like a real thing. You can invite people into your DNA group. It's like, we're going to keep talking about God, and you can learn in those places too. Uh, and so that, these three things, I believe, are actually how we love the city. There's plenty more, but this is what uh, we find in this passage, that we love the city by actually feeling empathy and compassion for the people. Uh, we, we see them for what's really going on and what's actually happening in their lives and in their souls. And then we, we reason and we dialogue and we spend time talking with them and even bravely telling them the truth and what they can pursue in life. Uh, I just want to say that we exist in, as a church. This is like on our website and it's, you know, I think it's on the board sometimes. We exist as a church to introduce the city to the person of Jesus. And not just like branding, you know, like people need to know Jesus, but need to know the person and the life and the hope that can only be found in Jesus. And so we, we exist to make that introduction. And that's what I love about what Paul did in the city of Athens is he made that introduction. He was patient. He saw. And we do this in our missional communities all the time. You do this in your work environment, in your homes. You, you live this out all the time. But I just want to remind us that what we are doing is we are loving the city by pointing them to the one true hope and the only hope possible. And so we're going to come and we're going to take communion now. Maybe as we've talked, you've realized, oh, I have idols that I'm worshiping and I'm not giving myself to the God that's reaching out and seeking me. And you can confess that with the people you take with. You can just kind of confess maybe a need to actually care about the people around you. Uh, but yeah, let's go and, and take communion. I'll pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. Thank you for this, uh, this gathering today where we get to uh, hear your scriptures. We get to take communion. We get to see one another. We get to proclaim your truth. Uh, and as we come and take communion now, God, I pray that we would, yeah, be reminded that you are sufficient that we'd have compassion for the people that don't know this, this love, the, the God who sent himself into the world to die and rise again to bring lasting hope, that we would be moved with compassion and a heart, even from taking communion for those that we love and those that are around us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.